This morning, as I said, we are um, starting a new series in the book of Malachi, and uh, Malachi is a very um, interesting book to study, and it's an interesting book in, in many ways, and so I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about the history or the timeline of when it was written and all of that, because a lot of that is uh, somewhat unclear. We don't, we don't know some of these things very well, but the word Malachi is ascribed to a man named Malachi, the, the name itself means my messenger. Uh, and so sometimes some people have actually taken this to mean that maybe Malachi wasn't, it wasn't really the person's name, but rather, you know, the name my messenger could have been to anyone. It could have been given to people that God wanted to use to speak. But most people seem to think that no, the, the name actually is the name of the author, the, the person, and the, the prophet Malachi. Now let me just give you a little bit of history, and if you, if you skip this part, if you aren't quite clued in on some of this stuff, that's okay, it's not going to change too much, but here's just a little bit of history um, that we can uh, focus on as the introduction to the book of Malachi. Uh, spurred on by the prophetic uh, activities of Haggai and Zechariah, uh, the return of the exiles under the leadership of their governor fin um, finished the temple uh, in 516 B.C., and in 458 B.C., the community was strengthened by the arrival of the prophet Ezra and also by the arrival of several thousand more Jews. And so there was this period in, in Jerusalem where it was really, really bleak. Right after the exile, um, you know, they had been taken out, and so a lot of people were displaced. And now they're returning back to Jerusalem, and it was a, it was a difficult time for the people of Israel. Um, there's the, the Persian king, Artaxerxes, uh, he encouraged Ezra to reconstitute the temple worship. He recognized that the law of Moses wasn't being preached and that the people after the exile really were not returning back to the, the teachings of Moses. They were not going back and doing temple worship. And so this king was like, Ezra, you need to reconstitute the temple. You need to get things going again. And so 14 years later, 444 B.C., this same Persian king, Artaxerxes, he permitted the cupbearer, Nehemiah, and I'm sure you've heard of Nehemiah, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. And so Ezra was kind of there to reestablish worship in the temple, and, and now Nehemiah is being sent back to do uh, some of the building work, you know, restoring the temple, restoring the walls of Jerusalem. And as the newly appointed governor, Nehemiah also spearheaded reform for the poor. He convinced the people to shun mixed marriages, to keep the Sabbath, and to bring back the, uh, the practice of tithing and offering. In 433, Nehemiah returned back to the service of the, the Persian king. And during his absence, Jew, the Jews fell back again into their sin, which seems to be a very common thing for these people to do. They would, they would you know, cling on to the message of Jesus, and then when their main leader would leave, they would very quickly return back to their, their sin. When Nehemiah came back again to Jerusalem, he found that the people had pretty much ignored the tithes. They, the Sabbath was broken. The people were now intermarrying with foreigners. And the priests had become corrupt. And, and much of the book of Malachi really does speak to these priests. And next Sunday... Um, Chapter 2, we really get the start of chapter 2 is very strong message against the priests who are neglecting their service 
to the people and neglecting their role as priests. And, and we're going to unpack that next Sunday, what that means for you and I as Christians. So a number of the things that you find Nehemiah addressing, the, the sins that the people were committing, the, the disobedience that they were committing, are also found in the book of Malachi. And this has raised the question of when was the book of Malachi written? As a matter of fact, some people think that Nehemiah and Malachi are actually um, contemporaries, meaning that they may have been in the area at the same time. We, we don't know this. But one thing we do know is that these two uh, writers are writing about a lot of the very similar sins, the similar issues that they find in the, in the um, uh, city of Jerusalem. So we know... What we do know for sure, though, is that the book of Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, and it appear, as it appears in our Bible. It marks the end of the old revelation, and it begins the more than 400 years of silence, where God literally was silent and did not speak until the birth of Jesus. So there's a little bit of history, and we could go much more in-depth than that, but I'm looking over you guys, and you're probably not all history buffs, and so some of us that really enjoy history. Um, but anyway, what we want to do now is we want to kind of shift gears and we want to start reading the book of Malachi and seeing what does this author, what does God say through this author to the people then, and obviously how does what he says apply to you and I today. The book of Malachi is structured in this as a seven-cycle argument between God and his people. And this is an important thing because this is a very different approach to writing than most of the other minor prophets and the prophets as they write their books. The book of Malachi takes a form of a dialogue or argument between God, you know, where God speaks and the people answer back. Okay? So God tells the people how he expects them to live. God tells the people something. And then the people respond almost with a cynical reply. And then God continues on to explain his original argument. Let me give you an example. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2, and it should be on the screen. The writer says this, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask. And so here's that cynical answer back, or question back. How have you loved us? And then God replies, was, God, was, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob and hated Esau. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackal. Edom may say, though we may have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of, God, of the Lord. You will see with your own eyes and say, <coughs> excuse me, great is the Lord even beyond Great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Jerusalem. So there you see a little bit of that example of where God says, you know, here's what I've done, and then the people say back, how have you done this? Here's what I'm doing, and the people answer back, how are you doing this? And then God goes and he answers back. But the very first thing that we see Malachi doing is God is telling the people that he has loved them with this tender, affectionate, and unconditional love. <coughs> So if you would hear that, what do you think would, you would expect as a reply from the people? So, you know, these people are being told, I have loved you. I have loved you with this a tender, 
affectionate, unconditional love, and you would think that the natural response from the people, the proper response from the people would be to devote their lives in worship and sacrifice to God. But instead, what we see these people doing is they're, they're challenging God. They're, they're questioning whether or not God has really done this. And, and what we actually begin to see them doing is they're just going through the motions. They're, they're doing the sacrifices. They're, they're going to the temple, but there's no, there's no emotion. There's no, there's no awe. And so they're just going through the motion. This idea of going through the motion, this is something that's not just for us who are Christians. You don't have to be a Christian to find yourself going through the motions in life. There are many people who find themselves maybe in their life today, and you find yourself just going through the motions of life. For example, you can go through the motions, or go, just through, the, uh, go uh, through just the motions in many, many different ways. You can go through the motions in your marriage. You know, one time maybe your marriage was like something really, really important to you, and you put a lot of energy into it, and you devoted a lot of time to your spouse, but now you find yourself, you know, just kind of going through the motions. You show up, you, you live in the same home, you, you know, you're together. But it's just kind of going through the motions. You can go through the motions through work. You know, you just show up, you just do your job. You don't really strive to go anywhere higher in the company. You're just, you're happy to just be where you're at. You, you don't really want to go any further. You're just you just kind of, you know, I punch in, I punch out, and I do my job, and I mind my own business, and I'm just going to get this done. You can find yourself going through the motions with your family. Again, instead of making a great effort to improve and, and to communicate more clearly, you're just going through the motions. You can find yourself, and this is an easy one, in the area of exercise. You know, you see a lot of these people that are at the gym, they, they're just going through the motions. They, they sit down at a machine, and they put it to a weight that they're comfortable with, and they just kind of do it, and they get on the treadmill, and they just kind of go at the pace that they can go. And then you see the other person, that, that psychotic individual, who is just ripping it and just going hardcore, and they're screaming as they're lifting, and they're running. That poor treadmill is just about dying, you know. And it's a completely different approach to exercise. you got the one person, a.k.a. Ike Unger, just kind of going through the motions, like, oh, man, the last thing I want to do is sweat in public, you know. And then you got the other person, who knows who, going absolutely and crazy, you can go through the motions in many, many different ways. I think the sad thing about when we just go through the motions is that we end up in a place in our lives where the joy of what used to be is gone. When we just go through the motions in our lives, suddenly the joy is removed, the awe is removed. It results in a lack of passion, it results in a lack of drive, it results in you know, the emotion is, being, is destroyed. And ultimately, when we go through the motions of something, you will actually find yourself, that you will actually find that it, it becomes destructive. Let's just go back again to, to your, your marriage. If, if you're just going through the motions in your marriage, there's no question that ultimately it's going to be destructive. Because something like marriage was never meant to just be done as a, you know, a routine Marriage takes work. Your marriage will only be as good as the work that you put into it. And what we find in the book of Malachi is we have this group of people. They're worshiping, <clears throat> they're worshiping God, or they're going through the rituals of worship, but they're really only going through the motions. These same people who had once been in exile have now been set free, and they are now back in their homeland where they can worship freely, 
But instead of celebrating what God has done in their lives, they just do what is required. And they do it without any gratitude. They do it without any awe. They do it without any worship. Ravi Zacharias says this. He says, when a man is bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. When a man is bored with God, even heaven does not have a better alternative. And here are these people who, they can worship God freely now, and they're not really in awe of God anymore. Let's jump to verse 6. God says this, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. If you priests who show contempt for my name, but you, it, it's you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, and here's that cycle again, how do, you, how do we show contempt for your name? In the original Hebrew, this word honor literally means to be heavy. So when we honor someone, it means that we treat them as a heavyweight in our life. This isn't just someone that, you know, we just, oh, you know, I honor my mother and father, or I, I honor my boss, or, or whatever. No, we treat this person as a heavyweight, someone with extreme importance, someone of great significance in our lives. And God is ultimately saying, I am your father, where's my honor? I am your father, why are you treating me with contempt? Why are you treating me as if though I'm, I'm not really anyone? I'm not really all that, I'm not worth all that much. I'm, I'm just sort of, you, you treat me with disdain. Why are you doing that? If I'm your father, why are you treating me with contempt? God wants to find from these people, he wants a heartfelt attitude of worship and respect towards him. And yet the people are not worshiping, worshiping him in that way. As a matter of fact, instead of examining themselves, the first thing they do is they just say back, how have we shown contempt for your name? Like, yeah, yeah, right, God. And even in that question, they are showing such contempt. Look at how he answers them. Verse 7, by offering defiled food on my altar. But you asked, instead of again taking time to think through and, and to process what God has just said to them, they, they ask again, how have we defiled you? And God continues by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? And check this out. He's like, try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. The Old Testament required that the people would offer God sacrifices. And he, it required that they would offer God their best sacrifices. So they would bring the best of their, their herds. They would bring the best of whatever they had. Because God did not want them to offer him their leftovers, their their, their wounded animals or their lame and diseased animals. But instead of bringing God their best animals, they were bringing him the ones that were no good for breeding or the ones that wouldn't fetch a very good dollar at the market. So they're taking their, their worst and they're saying, you know what, man, I could get a lot of money from this at the market and this one's not worth anything. I'm just going through the motions of worship. I'm just going through the motions of offering sacrifice. So whatever I have, I will offer it. You know, here, take Take this. 
because it wasn't really a genuine sacrifice. It wasn't really a genuine heartfelt act of worship. They were just going through the motions, and God is saying, why are you showing me such contempt that you would actually think that I am only worth your leftovers? God knows that they had much better gifts to offer. And so he asks them, literally, would you offer something like this to your governor? Someone who's just a mere man? You would never think to bring, you would never think to bring your, your governor something that wasn't the best, and yet here I am, I'm your God, and you offer me only your leftovers. I want to read to us now the rest of this chapter because there are a number of things in this in this uh, last part of this chapter that I, I trust will really speak to us and open our eyes. Verse 9, he says, Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, and will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Verse 10, Oh, that you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 12. But when you profane it by saying, the Lord's table is defiled, and its food is contemptible, and you say, what a burden, and you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, lame, and diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands? Cursed is the cheat who says an unacceptable, who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. And my name is to be feared among the nations. Something you need to understand in the, in the book of Malachi, this, um, the definition of God, Lord Almighty, shows up 24 times in this short little book. Clearly God is wanting to remind the people that He is great, that He is almighty, and that He has done great things for them and and he wants to remind them of that. He's like, you need to treat me. You need to, you need to worship me in that way. But instead of worshiping the Lord Almighty with reverence and fear, they have become contemptuous. They just treat him as if he is nothing, and they, they're really not in awe of God anymore. God so despises their sacrifices that he literally is like, I would rather you would just shut the temple doors. I would rather you would just close your church and never come in here again than continue to do this in this way. It's almost as if though when you thank someone, you're just rubbing it in their face. You're not really thankful. And then when you do, and you're like, oh man, you mean so much to me, and yet you know how they treat you behind your back, that doesn't feel like you've just been thanked or appreciated. It's as if though they're rubbing it in your face in one area and completely dis disregarding you in another. And God's saying, man, I wish you guys would just shut the temple doors and stop with the fake worship. 
Even the sacrifices they offered, they treated with contempt and with disdain. Look at this. In verse 13, remember they said this. What a burden. It's like, oh, man, we've got to get up and go sacrifice. Again, instead of worshiping God, instead of being in awe of him, they look at worshiping God as nothing but a burden. And so the people of Israel have completely lost their focus. And in verse 14, we read that they have better animals at home, but they refuse to bring the better ones. They have completely lost their focus, and they have completely taken for granted the amazing work that God has done in their life. That's the people in Jerusalem during the time of Malachi. So now let's bring this to us today. And I want to ask you this simple question, and you need to answer this for yourself, and the question is this, are we any better? Are we any better? When you think through your life, and when you think through what God has done in your life, and when you think of Jesus coming and dying on the cross for you, and God paying the ultimate sacrifice for you and I to have freedom from our sin, and that you and I can have the joy of Christ, are we offering God our best? Or are we offering Him our leftovers? So we saw in this short passage how these people were offering God their leftovers with bringing lame and diseased animals. So what does it mean to give God our leftovers today? This list could be probably almost exhaustive. We could spend a lot of time looking at ways that we can bring God our leftovers today, but let me just read off a few. When we bring God our leftovers, it's when we spend hours in a day watching the screen or hours in the day reading newspapers, which I'm not sure too many people do anymore, but we spend hours and hours in the day focusing on what we want to focus on, and then late at night, right before we go to bed, we quickly hammer down five minutes of devotion so that we can say we've had our time with God. It's when we bring our careers, our best energy, our best talents, our best motivation. But when it comes to serving in the church, we just sit on the sidelines. Or we serve with anything less than energy and enthusiasm. Oh, and we see... Our boss, man, we put on our best. We want to make sure that we make an impression with our boss, and and we want to excel in the company, and we want our company to do well, and, and we want to move ahead. But when it comes to the church, we have no such desire. We just kind of like grudgingly go through what we do, and, and we get through it, and we, we rarely give the same energy that we would give to our careers. It's when we spend all kinds of money on ourselves and what we want to do, but we never have anything, any money, to put into the tithe. Now, I know some of you are right away going, oh, here it comes, pastor begging for money. No, that's not it. I'll be very honest with you. We, as a church, are doing fine financially. And so this is not me begging you for money, but I believe that God has blessed us and that we need to give back in return. And so I'm going to leave that on you. But I think one of the ways that we can show and give God our leftovers is when we literally give our leftovers instead of giving our first fruits back to Him. It's when we cheer our hearts out for our favorite team. Maybe some of you were big-time Seahawks fans and you had your hearts broken, and some of you were big-time Patriots fans and you were just an absolute joy last Sunday, and, 
and you jumped up when that interception was made, and you're like, yes, and if you're a Seahawks fan, you fell to the ground crying like a little child, you know, and you're still weeping because it was such a horrible, horrible play, you know, and you're still upset, and some of you are looking at me like, what are you talking about? But, you know, it's when we cheer for our favorite team, and we're yelling, we'll buy jerseys, and we'll watch every game faithfully, but when it comes to worshiping on Sunday morning, we pretty much just stand there and wait for it to end. And I think sometimes in that way, we, we really just are not giving God more than our leftovers. It's when we love our kids so much that we would do that there wouldn't be anything what we wouldn't do for them, but if we're really totally honest, our heart does not beat the same way for God. I'm not saying not to love your kids, but sometimes, you know, we as parents, we so love our kids, we would do anything for our kids, but when we are, if we're really honest, there may be times in our lives where our heart does not beat the same way for God. It's when we read our Bible just so that we can say that we've read our Bible. It's when we pray the same memorized prayer over and over without ever really thinking about what we're saying. But we do it just to be able to get it done. It's when we would rather do stuff for God than actually be with God. And these, like I said, this, this list could be exhaustive. We could spend all kinds of time talking about how we are in danger at times of giving God our leftovers. And one of the things that you have to think about is, this is how upset God was with the people in that time. And this is prior to before he gave his ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And so I wonder if God was this displeased with these people when they gave him their leftovers back then, how much more he must be today when we give him our leftovers after he surrendered, and not surrendered, after he gave his one and only son to save us from our sins. But I think the thing that scares me even more is that we as a church can end up in the exact same place we as individuals can end up in. We as a church can just as easily end up in a place where we're just going through the motions. We're just doing the routine. We show up on Sunday and we do our thing and, and we, we show up when certain people are maybe presenting and we show up when certain things are happening and when those things aren't happening, we're nowhere to be seen. We just, we just go through the motions, and I think a church can easily end up in a cycle where they find themselves going through the motions. There's a story of a man named Henry Ward Beecher who was one of the most famous preachers in America. People from all over the, the country would come to hear him preach and attend his worship services at their church. And one Sunday he was absent, and, and as the people were sitting there, and all of a sudden this the guest speaker stood up to go and preach, the people realized Henry is not here. And he's not going to be preaching this morning. And so people began to get up and leave. And the visiting minister said this, May I have your attention? All those who have come this morning to worship Henry Ward Beecher, you may withdraw from the church. And all who have come to worship God, please stay. How easy it is for us to end up in a place where we worship certain things and our heart does not beat in the same way for God. How easy it is for, start to, to, for us to start looking at church as a place where we have our needs only met, but we're not really there to, to worship God. People 
may come to a worship service for a lot of superficial reasons. They want to hear a certain preacher. They want to have their kids in Sunday school. They want to visit with friends. They want to fulfill an obligation. Maybe they're like, okay, God, in 2015, New Year's resolution, I'm going to go to church. They want to please their parents. I'm sure there's an odd teenager in the church today who's maybe here just because mommy and daddy wouldn't give up. Parents, don't give up. Keep bringing them. But the only reason that is acceptable is for us to come to honor God. And you can be here today maybe for other reasons, and I'm not telling you not to keep coming, but if you really want to know what is it that, that is honorable and accepting to God, it's when we come, not just on a Sunday morning, but when we live our lives to honor and to worship Him. When we worship, we focus on God. When we worship, it's, it's changing the focus away from us and it's placing it on God. Louis Giglio says it this way, Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who He is and what He has done, expressed in and by the things we say in the way that we live. Worship is our response. When God looked upon His people, He saw people just going through the motions. So are we, are you, in this place in our lives right now where we're just going through the motions? So I want to answer this question, and the team can come on up already. What do we do if we find ourselves maybe this morning just going through the motions? What do you do this morning if you're, if you're honest with yourself and you're like, you know what, you're right. I am literally just going through the motions. I, I don't really feel a deep love for Jesus. I don't really feel this connection. I, I don't really feel like I'm engaging. I, I find myself reading the Bible and it's just sort of, it's just sort of there, but I'm not really engaged. I, I show up at church and, and I do these things, but really, if I'm honest with myself, I'm in a place right now where I'm just going through the motions. So what do you do? How do you get out of it? How do these people, how do you, in the Old Testament, when you looked at these people who were just going through the motions of life, how did they get through? How did they get beyond there's only one way that I find. This maybe is going to sound somewhat weird, considering what we're talking about, but the truth is if you find yourself this morning going through the motions, even in your spiritual life and with your relationship with God, the only way I believe that you can get out is with genuine worship. Think about it for a moment. How does God become real to you? It's through worship. Through a response. See, God can give you everything you need, and He has given you everything you need. And if there's no response from you, all you do is you're just a consumer, you're just taking in, you're just taking in, and you're and eventually you, you've taken in so much you're really not even in awe of what you're taking in anymore. But when there's a genuine response back, I believe suddenly we see God and who He really is. When we focus on God in worship, we honor Him. We give Him our best. You cannot worship God with anything less than your best because anything else is just going through the motions. We exalt His great name. We offer Him our warmest worship, our deepest desires to be changed. And when we worship, we are changed. So I want you to hear me very careful today. Worship is not for God's benefit. It is for yours. 
me explain that. You never make God greater by worshiping him. And we may have this idea sometimes from celebrities where the more people are worshiping a certain band, the, the more popular they get, the more greater they get, the more well-known they are. That's not how it works with God. God will not be changed. He is never less or more based on us. He is always the Lord Almighty. Always. So when you worship Him, He's not in heaven going, oh, now I'm someone greater. No, He is greater. But when you worship Him, you are now in that relationship where you have always needed to be and should always be. So worship is not for God's benefit. It is for ours. If we leave church with a faith stronger, your hopes brighter, your love deeper, your sympathies broader, your heart purer, and with, uh, with your mind focused fully on God, then you have truly worshipped. So are you just in the motions this morning? Are we as a church? Come on, we've got to ask that question. We have to ask that question. Are we as a church just going through the motions? I pray not. But I think we have to take time to examine, and the only way that we are going to find ourselves moving beyond that place of just going through the motions is to dive in and to worship the Lord Almighty. So if you find yourself today in that place, I want you to know that you can, you can come out of that place by focusing your full attention on Jesus. And you will all need to do that, and it will take work, and it will take an effort, but you can today say, Lord, right now, I turn my focus on you again, and I want to be drawn closer again to you. I want to feel the experience of what it means to be in close relationship with you. And he will answer that. He will draw you in. 